You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to round two. I hope you're all <coughs> currently in the process of getting your blood alcohol level up to uh, that fine level where you're ready to confront the terrors of this current reality, which when you walk out the door may, as we all know, become a different one. Let's hope. <laughs> yeah, just put your hand on the knob. Uh, you know, one of the things that struck me first off from, from, these, uh, from these performances were the performances and I wanted to talk to each of the writers uh, you know about the importance of you know these kind of events where when you see something performed it's really different from uh, the hearing it from reading it to yourself I think you get a lot of the benefits of the reading experience where you still have to create the the language within yourself and put it together and assemble the story and you still get to direct the film, so to speak, and, and people it with stars. But to hear the voices, that was just great. Uh, now, uh, Cloud, tell you, <laughs> you had two very different stories there. Yeah. Uh, talk about the, the, the voices, because I love the kid and I yeah. love the guy well, and they fun. had kind of different sides of the same coin. Uh, are they? Uh, <laughs> but I don't know. I, I think... That kid lives in a world all his own. Uh, but, um, um, I, I mean, it's the thing is, I love uh, The Lost and Found of Years, which is the thing that I performed at the end. That's one of my favorite performance things. Like, I'd love to perform that piece so much. It always gets a laugh. It's always fun. Like, in Montreal, most of all, because there's all this stuff about there. When I do it there, like, I, like you know, the... Uh, audience goes crazy which is fun um, but um, I like to find uh, when I choose the stuff that I want to read I I try to find the stories with characters that that are gonna make a fun performance you know so um, so not every one of my stories I think is ideal for a public reading but I really try to select those that I think will give me the chance to ham it up a bit to have emotion to be either vulnerable or crazy or funny or something that's gonna spark a, re a reaction you know well dick your story certainly sparked a reaction too and, and I love the idea of, of having that performed uh, you know Talk about working with, with the actors and, and you know, how, how much, t tell the audience how much you did work with them and, and just, you know, the way you write, I think, lends itself to, to this kind of performance. Well, I didn't work with them at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I sent Laurie and Greg three stories, actually two stories in a fraction. Uh, fragment of a story that, in fact, I'm, I'm working on for a, an anthology of, of which Claude is the editor. Oh, uh, good. Is this uh, which one? Which uh, anthology? Just real quick. An anthology about it's called oh. Biblioteca Fantastica. It's open until the 31st, and it should come out in the fall from Dagan Books. Now, okay. Well, anyway, this story. Uh, give, give it an advanced plug. It's it's called Greetings from Comrade Kim. And I will tell you nothing more about it than that. Um, Can't wait to read it. <laughs> but, but of, of the stories that I that I sent Laurie and Greg, they picked this one. 
and I think it was a good choice because it has good male and female parts in it. Mm. Some stories don't work out that way. Um, and they asked me if I would like to sit in with them as they, as they rehearse it, and I said, uh, I would rather sit in the audience uh, just like any other John Doe and hear it with a fresh ear. And I was just absolutely thrilled with the job they did. I mean, they, they put it was thrills fantastic. through It was me. so good, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I think that, you know, just hearing the way this, the readings tonight in particular for me, really uh, just brought to mind how important these kind of events are. It, because also, when you hear something read like this, it informs the way you read. I know that when I go back and read the next uh, Claude Lumiere book I read, it's going to be really different really from the way I read it the first time. And I think the same thing with, with Dix. I'm going to hear that kind of the lilt and cadence that the authors, that the, the performers brought to it. And I think that that's an important reason to get out here and to listen to these things. Well, it's always fun, and sometimes you're surprised. I recall on one occasion just listening to the radio. Uh, I was in, in, in my car, and I turned something on, so I came in on the middle of it, but I immediately recognized um, uh, one of uh, Kurt Vonnegut's books being read. I, I don't recall offhand which one it was, but uh, it was no question in my mind it was Vonnegut. And I thought, I don't know who this reader is, but he's really terrible. He does not understand Vonnegut. Why in the world did they pick him? And it they, was Vonnegut? It was Vonnegut. <laughs> of course it was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a lesson to be learned in all things you can hear on the radio. <laughs> now, you know, the other connection I saw between these two readings tonight was the importance of story in our lives and the way that, that our lives are stories that we tell ourselves. Yes. And I think Cloud, Cloud's uh, uh, book story, it's a book of stories about books. It's, it's you know, it's a Mebius strip of a, of a novel. And I think that's an interesting way to approach story in the Mebius strip way because um, it really makes us, uh, we're halfway through it and we can look and see the other half and see, wait, I'm going back to the beginning, not to the end. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I do like to have, uh, like, I play with, with structure a lot. And as we said during the interview earlier, um, I, uh, like, one of my big loves is the Arabian Nights, which is, a, which is this, uh, you know, uh, this, uh, as I like to say, this mosaic of stories, as stories within stories, within stories. And I kind of, tr and I love that form. It really ignites me uh, a lot as a writer. And I try to reproduce that a, a little bit with the new book. And, and Dick, you know, your, your story really does talk about, you know, the way we kind of put together, you know, he was talking about uh, Mosaic. And I think, you know, to a degree, any, all of our lives we put together as mosaic as we construct them out of the little things we remember because we can't remember every single second of our lives but we can remember kind of the highlights and we put those things together and what we seem to remember is the order and then make up stuff that goes in between that makes sense well, well if, if you're just going to talk about human memory then this is a real Chinese box right a box within a box within a box uh, some years ago Michael Curland and I did a book, a book about memory, a nonfiction book, mm -hmm. uh, which involved certain theoretical aspects and certain practical aspects, such as how to remember your own phone number. Right? <laughs> um, and, and one of the things 
that I found myself delving into as we were doing our research for that book was the different kinds of memories that we have. To give you an example, when you learn something, especially in early childhood, you retain what you have learned, but you do not retain any recollection of having learned it. Wow, that's an right? interesting observation. You, yeah. you don't remember learning how to walk. You don't remember learning how to speak. You don't even remember learning how to feed yourself. You may remember that it was really hard to learn how to tie your shoelaces. That's at about, what, age four or five. That's, that's when you start to be able to remember learning rather than merely learning the substance. But I think that might be, that's the age that we start to tell ourselves stories. Yes. Because the way we remember, we don't remember events. We remember the stories we tell ourselves about the events that w we lived through. You know, we, we don't ever really remember anything. What stays alive, as you were kind of hinting at when you were talking, is that we tell ourselves stories about our lives. And the things we remember are the, are, are the, are the items that keep coming up in the narrative we tell ourselves about our lives. So that, you know, we'll, we, we will forget things like often, like I have been with friends who remember a weekend that we had and I have no recollection of that weekend because for them, it was a life-changing time. And for me, it was one weekend uh, uh, among so many that were the same. And the same has happened in reverse where I will remember an evening with someone where I thought it was really meaningful. And for them, it was just one evening among so many. So they don't remember it at all because they didn't, they, they didn't tell themselves the story of that evening as part of their life beats, as part of something that was important in their life. So it's forgotten because it's not retold. Um, I'd like to add something. Anybody remember uh, a man named Gene Shepard? Yeah. With a radio yeah. person? Also wrote one of the greatest movies of all time called <laughs> A Christmas Story. Right? Brilliant, brilliant movie. Uh, Shepard used to have one of these all-night monologue shows on the radio, and, and uh, my beloved spouse and I were not yet married. She was in, in college up in Connecticut, and I was living in New York. I would drive up to Connecticut on Friday, and we'd spend the weekend, and then Sunday night, late, I would be driving home and listening to Gene Shepard all the way back from New London, Connecticut to Midtown Manhattan. And Shepard just would go on and on, and he had these marvelous images that he would project. The one that I remember most vividly of all, he says, think of your life. Think of yourself at the earliest stage of your life, but not of you. Think of what you were wearing, probably a diaper. And think of every garment you have ever worn in your entire life in a row, stretching from that diaper all the way up to what you're wearing at this very moment. Is that your life? I thought, oh. It's just, I, I could not get that out of my head. It was such an amazing image. Uh, sometime after that, I was chatting with a friend of mine named Chris Steinbrunner, who worked for the same radio station in New York, WOR, where Shepard did his broadcasts. And I said, isn't that guy marvelous? Is that just all stream of thought? And Chris said, no, that's all scripted. I said, no, really? He said, oh, yeah. He, by scripts. I've written several of them for him. <laughs> well, well, you know, what that suggests, too, is that I think that's why reading and, 
is such a powerful form <clears throat> uh, and hearing stories told in language form is such a powerful form of art that will never ever be outmoded by any form of technology because we can the best stories we read are become like memories i mean you can just go back and visit that story like it's a little vacation you well, it's the same thing that when I speak about, you know, our life events, there are books that, that we read because we read them at a moment in our life that was so important. We'll remember those books, even though they might not be that good. But the, but, but the context in which we read them is one that is part of our story. So that story becomes part of our story, even if it's not any good. <laughs> but on the other hand, Occasionally, we'll read a book, and while we read it, we think, oh, my God, this is fucking brilliant. And then a, a month later, we don't remember anything about it. <laughs> you know, yeah. Well, you know, I, I like you guys. Now, your story is has all these really nicely done elements of the fantastic, and I think that's something else that you guys really share in common is that you both write stories that are full of fantasias, but they don't feel that way. I mean, you don't. I don't listen to your thing and think, "Oh, this is a sign." You know, this is like a, a this is like a, a story where people are walking around. You know, it's not like a man in a suit, suit monster story. As much as I love a man in a suit monster story, <laughs> um, and and you know, I, I hear yours and I think, don't think you know, this is like you know, guy in the just Doctor Who and the Tardis kind of story. <laughs> you know, and I as much as I love a Doctor Who and the Tardis story, um, so. Each of you talk about, you know, just the way you handle that. Yeah, well, I know when my first book came out about two years ago, th three years ago, um, a lot of the reviews said that I made the fantastic seem mundane. And I, and I think that's kind of where you're coming Exactly, from, uh, and, that, and both you know, of you do yeah. that. I mean, yeah, yeah, it seems totally normal. Is this normal. a compliment? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> well, just that it is because for the characters, what I do is, and, and, I, and, and I do this... Uh, quite intentionally is that for the characters what's happening is not weird is not out of the ordinary it's out of, out of the ordinary for the reader but I write it as if it were completely commonplace and I do that on purpose and I, I think that but yours, yours your characters are somewhat surprised by it but I think they also there's just a feel in, in that story uh, it seems very mainstream to me. I mean, it's anybody could get it and dig it. Well, I, I, I hope so. Um, <laughs> I'm not trying to write for an, a narrow, specialized readership. Mm -hmm. I'm not exactly trying to write for any readership or, or for every readership. I, I think, well, I, I, I'm sort of blathering here because I do what I do, you know, and, and then I yeah. try and step back and look at it. It's not so much planned and formulated yeah, yeah, in advance. Not. It's whatever's in there and, and comes out. And sometimes, well, uh, tonight, hearing Laurie and Greg read this story, even though I wrote the story, it was sufficiently fresh to me as a listener mm -hmm. that at certain points I was, I was a little bit shocked by it and a little bit amazed by the, that, that next event. Um, well, your story and 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 uh, Cloud's last story, uh, uh, Cloud's last story ha had a, a real. Um, they, I think they had a very similar in that they both um, looked at kind of revised reality. You know, the the characters were revising reality, and and I think that's you know hell. I revise reality all the time. 
Yeah. <laughs> Ask anybody who's talked to me. I, <laughs> the thing is, if, if, if Castleman is a metaphor for, for, for anybody, um, the moral, yeah, there are moral issues involved. I think there are serious, I, I guess, uh, Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, I, I, I am a, uh, just a storyteller, and it's just a story. And then Tuesday, Thursdays, and Saturdays, there's a, a serious moral issue. And uh, Sundays, everybody goes to the beach. Um, but but there is a moral in the Castleman stories, of which there have now been three, and, and they that moral is that we do have the power to control our lives, and that this is a good thing, but it's not totally a good thing because it also places a very very heavy burden of responsibility upon us. If, if you have no power, if you are just a pawn, you're not responsible. Uh, if you're the chess player, you are responsible. And it's the chess, it's the pawn may, may, may do certain things on the board or get knocked over, taken by the opposing player. But the, the pawn has no responsibility because he has no control. It's the game player who has the control and consequently has the responsibility for everything that happens. Well, too, I think both of you, I mean, both those stories are, are very finely crafted. I mean, when, when we experience some, we experience all the emotional resonance and the, and the thoughts about storytelling, but also kind of in the background, it's like watching uh, like a very intricate Rube Goldberg machine or a very wonderful piece of, you know, uh, uh, sculpture kind of unfold itself out because each thing slots in it's nicely paced and do you guys is that come out does that flow off the tip of your pen or do you have to go back and like fix the machine does it come out like uh, sometimes go plunk no, well you see i i spend a lot of time daydreaming and pondering and a lot of the of of that intricate structure that you're talking about is dealt with at at the pondering stage. I don't really know everything when, when I start, but I have kind of this vague scaffolding in mind. And um, and then a lot of it, I think, just comes, yeah, as Dick said, you kind of analyze it after the fact, but while it comes out, it just comes out. You know, you, you tell the story, you tell stories the way you tell stories, and that's the way it, it is. But I do tend, like, I ponder a lot, and then I write. Yeah, Dick. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I could have. I could have made that. I could. I could probably sit down and in a half a day, I could plot that story out on an Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> well, your com your computer skills exceed mine. Well, but I mean, it's got a very like. It, it has that kind of structure in that it's it's very structured. You can you know there's it's uh, like gears and wheels and it fits well, together. Okay, uh, I'll tell you an incident that happened. Oh, a long time ago when I was in the army, I had a good friend, um, an older, more senior officer than I was, and he sort of adopted me in a kind of avuncular, almost paternal fashion because I was a, a very young little lieutenant and he was this grizzled colonel. We were riding one time, again, in an automobile, and some music was playing. And we reached our destination, and he turned off the radio, and I continued to hum that piece of music. And he said, oh, are, are you familiar with that? And I said, no, I never heard it before. He said, well, how do you know the rest of it? 
I said, because if you listen to the music, you can hear its structure, and there is a logical continuity. And I was just following out the logical continuity after you turned off the radio. There was nothing. I didn't think there was anything remarkable about that, but he did. Well, that makes sense. That's why you're telling stories. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a, also a good story, as it as a word. Nice. It is a good story. Now, uh, do we have any questions from the audience? story fits into the dialogue of all the, the stories that have been written before with a similar theme. And I don't know whether there was any intentionality in wanting to engage kind of in that conversation with either of you, but it reminded me of when I learned about classical music in college where they talked about the art of the fugue and the structure of a symphony, like the rondo form, which is that Basically, music has a, a, a certain format, you know, like first one theme is introduced. I mean, with, with your story, I was thinking about typewriter in the sky. I was thinking about all of the stories where a writer has characters that come to life, and then the writer engages with the characters. And with Dick's story, I was thinking about all of the cyclical uh, time travel stories where someone has a chance to keep repeating and changing the level of reality. And um, I was just wondering, like, how far you can go with that. And um, I think that Dick was answering this, which is that um, he sort of felt like the story, just like hearing part of a song, like that the rest of it was kind of telling itself from the beginning. But I was just wondering how much, how much you, you engage with that and think, I remember how this goes, and I think I want to introduce a wrinkle that wasn't there the last time. Well, uh, if I may, okay, see, I call that creative misreading. And um, in, um, in my first book, Objects of Worship, which is a collection, I included notes in the back for each story about, about the dialogue in which I felt that story inserted itself into. So I, I, yes, I do think exactly about that. I do think that all fiction is dialogue and everything that I've read is part of the dialogue that I'm trying to contribute to. And of course, uh, some specific stories will be part of, you know, one part of that, uh, of that conversation. But that's, that is how I, how I approach things. And, I, and I'm very aware of that. So that's quite astute, yes. Uh, you're much more conscious of what you're doing than I am of what I do. Um, first of all, I, I don't believe I've created a story in my life. I find them. I just look around and the world is full of stories. And you find one that interests you and you, you pick it up and put it on paper and sell it, which is really nice. Um, but as for these recursive time travel stories, I think the first one I read was actually a relatively minor story. It was called Find the Sculpture by a relatively minor writer named Samuel Mines. Um, this was in the, I believe he wrote the story around 1940. I read it later in a, in a reprint. It was about a man who is, is very, very curious about where a certain sculpture, there's a mysterious bust of a, of a heroic figure 
and it's a, it's a mystery because nobody knows quite who the person is or who the sculptor was or where it came from. And somehow this character winds up traveling through time. I don't remember the device. I read it a very long time ago. But he winds up in the future. And he finds that that sculpture is still there. And he steals it. And he brings it back to his own time. And that's where it came from. Well, okay. And, and then there was the... Lenny and I were talking a little while ago about a, uh, a Heinlein story called All You Zombies, uh, which is one of these recursive stories. And, and there are many, many others. Um, it's, it's one of the more interesting psychological phenomena that we, we play with. We play with time. We exist at any moment in that moment. And yet, like Gene Shepard's row of clothing, right, all the moments of our life are like that. And when each of us reaches the very end of his or her life, if you could have that one moment of Satori and say, what was this all about? It was all about everything from that moment of birth to now, right? We're none of us just as we are at the moment. We're all of us as we are throughout our lives. 55 years of underwear. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's an awful thought. We don't remember the event themselves, but the stories we tell ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yes, we will. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, also. Yes, there is. Well, because the context keeps changing. Every event that we remember, we remember it in the context of a new and larger story. So the meaning of it always changes. So yes, that's right. We're always writing our own all alternate histories. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I was web surfing one day and came across a transcript of an interview with Philip K. Dick. Wonderful, wonderful person, wonderful. Talk about messing with your mind. Yes. Right? He told a great story about the time he made a pass at my wife and I caught them and, and decked him. And it was a great story, except it never happened. <laughs> no, wait, I, I take that back. In my recollection, it never happened. In his recollection, it happened. Who is to say who is right? Your, Your wife? wife? <laughs> 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 well, that's when the edit button comes in really handy. <laughs> Do we have any other questions from the audience? Oh, I wish I wrote every day. No, I, I, am, I, I write in spurts. Like, you know, I can write really intensely from, for weeks and weeks. Then I can go months where I don't write anything. And um, it, it's, uh, it's totally unpredictable for me. I really have no clue. Uh, I mean, 
I can feel it building when it's building. And I know right now I'm, a, uh, I'm, I'm traveling a lot at the moment and I can feel it, that it's building again. And I know that I'm on the verge of, you know. When you're pondering though, do you, do you see the whole thing? Or no, no, you're no, 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 I'm voice driven. Yes. Well, uh, sometimes I write and sometimes I don't. Lately, I've been doing a lot of editing. I, I got a chance not long ago to run an Im a small imprint for a small pub. You know the old saying, little fleas have littler fleas to bother and to bite them. <laughs> littler fleas have littler fleas and on ad infinitum. Well, the imprint that I'm running is one of the littler fleas on a little flea, which is the parent company for which I'm doing it. Uh, it's, it, it was a lifelong ambition, uh, and I couldn't resist. He made me an offer I couldn't resist. And, and I've had a great time with it, but I discovered that it is much more demanding of time and energy than I expected it to be. But when I, when I do write, and I've got this story that I'm working on for Claude right now, um, I have a quota of pages each day. Uh, I do not have a schedule by hours because I, I am a moral weakling and... Uh, and uh, That's being a writer. Yeah, That's right. the definition. <laughs> like a um, I will find so many excuses, whether it's the laundry needs to be folded and put away or the dog needs to be walked or the telephone is ringing or I need to make myself a cup of coffee and... I would never get anything done if I, if I said, well, I'm going to write for four hours today. But if I say, I'm going to write four pages today, come hell or high water, I don't care if it takes me, if it takes me four hours per page and it takes me 16 hours to write them, I'm going to do it. On the other hand, if it's just flowing, what baseball players call being in a zone, musicians call being in the groove, right? When a writer gets into what's sometimes called the creative trance, I mean, you, you can just almost sit there and let your fingers do the yeah. walking. It's just amazing. And it's wonderful when that happens. <laughs> <laughs> but right, it doesn't happen all time, the time. <laughs> there was that time in 1961 that it happened to me. <laughs> but, 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 but to me, seriously, uh, the only way that I can, that I can get anything done is to set daily work quotas rather than rather than numbers of hours. We have another question there. Usually, I I start the story knowing with with, with only a spring. You know, we're talking about short stories. Novels are 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 a whole different story. Um, but with a short story, I'll, I'll know the initial situation and I know who it's going to be about. And I have a feeling of the direction in which it's going to move. And somewhere between halfway and two-thirds of the way through, I discover what the ending is going to be by the process of detecting the logic and the progression of the story. And then you don't invent the ending, or I don't invent the ending. I look ahead, as with that piece of music, that, that incident I mentioned earlier. You can s once you have established a logic within the story, then it will logically reach a certain conclusion, and and you don't invent that. You have to find it. 
I, I think that's a bit of a bit of voice too. I think that you know, and that's something I just wanted to mention. You guys, the you were both talking about voice. I think that voice leads you in the direction too. Well, Cliff, I have a kind of a silly question for Dick. So um, you have a very likable protagonist, in part because in the three stories he kind of goes through hell. And yet, he puts enormous effort to rescue, of all people, Spiru Agnes. <laughs> 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 but isn't that funny? That <laughs> of all the presidents to rescue from assassination. Well, <laughs> remember, this, this isn't a parallel reality. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> Any more questions? One more. I was going to ask you this on the trip home, but I thought I'd ask you now. So, in listening to this new story that you heard tonight with my husband and I reading it, did you hear anything that you hadn't thought of before that you might want to change, or were the characters any different now to you because of just hearing somebody completely other reading your creations? No, I, I think you got exactly what was there, but, but uh, you or Greg did find a couple of bizarre typos that I had made in the story, and I thank you. And I've got to send an email to my editor in the morning and say, no, 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 Gordon. <laughs> that word was, it was an unconscious pun. Uh, the couch in the, in the psychiatrist's office, I spelled C-H-E-Z instead of C-H-A-I-S-E. And as Greg pointed out to me, <laughs> you're saying there was, there was no house in the corner of her office. <laughs> no, there was no couch. So a, a, couple, a couple, but but no, you 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 got the characters and you you got the plot, and I was just listening to it and had a great time. Okay. And, and the other thing I wanted to say to both of you is, uh, I'm an English teacher, and um, one of the things I'm always you know challenging my students with is you know what is it that makes us human? You know, in the years that I've been on this planet, it's gone from you know well man is the tool maker. Well, check out the apes with the termites on a stick or whatever man is the only one with language well what about whales yeah. you know what i mean all these things keep falling man only is the one that mourns the dead elephant, elephant yeah. so so I, I i keep pushing them and and one of the things that i think is really true that has to be the right answer is man is the only one who tells stories about his or her own experience or maybe not. I mean, maybe cows are sitting around, you know, writing novels. <laughs> but I really liked what you said, that we remember and we make stories. So what is it that makes us human? That we come together and we sit and we listen to each other's stories. Humans are a narrative species. Yeah, but... Right, but I will say that there is this obsession in, uh, in human culture yeah. of trying to find... What makes us different from the other animals? Right. And I don't understand it. Just because we have, a, we have some characteristics or traits, that doesn't mean that they're not shared by other animals. And whether or not they are, so what? We're not less human as a result. Yeah. And, and we do not need to have a trait that no other creature has or has not. You know, it's just not important. Like, I mean, you know, I mean, we, you know, we're what we are because of some evolutionary whatever, but just that it's, it doesn't make us less human because some other animal does it too. Bravo. Yeah, yeah. no, thank you. Yes. 
my English class and sit. <laughs> <laughs> I love going to classes. I have a lot of fun when I do those things. We got time for just one more real quick one. Go, go for it. Um, this was sort of a, a kind of a, a technical question for Dick again about this genre that I, I'm really tickled by. Um, in 1202, uh, was, was Myron aware of the uh, Fritz Leiber, like the big time aspect of his universe, like the change war? Um, because it seems to me um, that that's something like that you introduced this time. Idea that, that there are yeah. so basically the whole the, the 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 references like the dialogue kind of expanded this time like to include this other dialogue from the end of eternity and the, the big time like the idea of the battle between the players to like to shape reality so it's like each time you go around like it expands like there's a new there's a, and I, I'm wondering whether think you'll be able to go another round. <laughs> <laughs> I should live so long. Um, in, well, in 1201, of course, he was just trying to escape this terrible trap in which he found himself. In 1202, he escapes it. But there's nothing more in his worldview than that. Oh, I've escaped. In 1203, he discovers that there's a lot more to it than that. And in fact, in an earlier draft of the story, you, you may recall the scene where Dolores mentions uh, Ian Fleming or those spooky movies with the shadowy figures. In an earlier draft, she actually refers to Fritz Schleiber and to Phil Dick. And my editor said, uh, this is just a little bit too cute. The readers are going to, they're, they're not going to be happy. So uh, remove the direct science fiction references. So that so that reference is out. I, th I think that was actually a good, good good call on her part. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, I, I like the kind of the the, the floaty uh, version of it. Yeah, well, he's a good editor. Yeah, it's Gordon Van Gelder. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we've been graced with the fabulous talent of Claude Lelumiere and Dick Mupoff uh, tonight, and the fabulous performance of Greg T Day and. Lauren 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 Lori Thielhan close enough <laughs> thank you very much for joining us thank you everyone come back again in a month and you can find out all the details at sfnsf.org and this is all being recorded for a podcast and you can find that at agonycolumn.com <laughs> thanks Rick thank you <laughs> You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Thank you.